Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the last episode of Guilt, Untold Stories. The point that's always been difficult for me to come to grips with was the, the fact that he rang in with his own name late morning, after the day after, and came into the station and allowed us to identify who he was and if he was the offender, why did he do that? From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt, Untold Stories. In the last episode, we discussed in depth John Russell and his connection to this case. I spoke to the former sergeant in charge of the initial search for Cursor, McCull, about meeting Russell. In this episode, we're going to speak further with Mick about the initial search for Cursor, which involved not only police, but also hundreds of members of the public. This is part four. The search and the truck. Kiwi had arrived at work and was being briefed on what was going on. Whether he knew anything about it prior to arriving at the station, I don't know. Hmm. But, okay. Uh, and then, um, so at that point, when does the sort of the wider search around that area um, sort of start, I guess? Well, I, I think the CIB probably um, put a cordon around the scene yeah. and had an officer in charge of the, the scene and they would have began their inquiries at the scene. I know sometime in the next few hours uh, I was informed that I was going to be in charge of the search party yeah. and I was given, oh, I don't know, eight or ten or, uh, staff to form the search party and we probably began the day... The, after, you know, and um, we weren't allowed anywhere near the scene because there was still DSIR and police detectives, you know, doing a close scene examination. 
So we just began a general search out from yep. that point. Say the gun emplacement was the the point that we identified. That we spread yep. the search out from there. So sort of, um, I guess you follow that path down the beach where she probably took the horse and stuff and everywhere around. Yeah, we we just kept on moving out from that point. Yeah. And constantly found, searching. Never found anything. That... No. We, a couple of days, the, about the second day, Kiwi came to me and said that there's a huge amount of um, support from the public to get involved in the search for her. And I initially thought it would be a bit difficult coping with a large number of people. But he he said that for the goodwill, it's really important that we involve the public. And so I think on the the first Saturday afterwards, a couple of hundred or more turned up at, I think it was the Clive Rugby Club room where I briefed them. And they all went out with a policeman as a search party and they exhausted the areas that they had uh, on that day and then for the next six or eight weeks my search party just continued to move out and respond to any information that came in from the inquiry team or the public yeah. that we need to search. I wonder if um, you know that all those that public that came in for that search, do you think that their names would have been kept track of all those no. people because you know quite often in a case yeah people that are involved will try and you know involve themselves in yeah i was left at the the um, clive rugby club rooms with just my search party and two or three hundred members of the public Jesus. you know so this we w- wouldn't have been in a position to record yeah. all their names mm. and um Sort of, you know, everyone with intentions in the right place. So oh yeah, absolutely. Sort of you know, a line kind of. Going they would along. have felt good that they had got in and helped, but yep. um, there was a huge number of bits of information coming into the inquiry team about where the body was. You know, all the oh, yeah. so-called experts. You know that she's under a branch or whatever. We took, we exhausted every one of those, and yep. not one of them offered any real. Yeah you know yeah information yeah. yeah i mean it's hard with things you know you've got clairvoyance yeah. and psychics yeah and that's mainly what 90% of them were yeah yeah i want to jump in here and make a note in the days and weeks following curse's disappearance the police were flooded with calls from so-called psychics and mediums each one apparently knowing without doubt what happened to cursor and where her body could be found. Within only a few weeks, the police had already responded to 118 of these leads. Many of these resulted in undue pain and suffering for Curse's family. In one case, a psychic called Robin Jensen and told her that it was up to her to make the police listen to him. And if she didn't, then Curse's murderer would kill again and it would be entirely her fault. Another arrived in town with a clear vision of Cursor having been taken to a backcountry hut up a gully in Motio. The police took her to the area, but there was no hut and none of the terrain she described. 
she was completely lost. These tips went on and on. Everyone being investigated, and everyone being nothing more than a complete waste of thousands of hours of the police's precious time. But as Ian Olyoke said in part two, they needed to check every lead. Not because they believe these people had supernatural powers, but because there's always the chance that someone may actually have some knowledge of what happened to Cursor, and that this was a way to try and pass it to police. On the ground in the area surrounding where Cursor was last seen, the real search continued. With Mick leading a team running independently of Ian's inquiry team. I, I vividly remember starting the search with all the trees, um, deciduous trees without any leaves. By the time we'd finished the search six or eight weeks later, all the trees had leaves on, you know. Right. And I, I, I can't recall that we ever had a wet day. We went for six or eight weeks searching in beautiful weather. Through spring and everything. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, it's quite incredible. Yeah. We were almost separate from yeah. the information that was being shared with the inquiry team. Yeah. You know, um, they gave us what we needed to know and, uh, yeah. you know, but it was really disappointing in the end that we didn't come up with yeah, of course. Cursor or her body and uh, eventually it was, mm. we were all stood down and returned to normal duties. I've driven that way many times yeah. and I've never really looked, but yesterday I drove across and I looked and I just couldn't, it's so open um, and even though it might be 150 yards across to the emplacement, I mean, that's a busy road, yeah. but I find it, I just thought it seemed hard to imagine you could incapacitate someone, yeah. get them in a vehicle without being seen by someone. Yeah. There must be a highly suspicion that she was persuaded to get into a vehicle mm-hmm. that on the belief that she was going to be taken home or something. Yeah. Because there's no way in my mind that she was dealt to at the scene. Mm-hmm. Now, whether she had a fall or not, because there's a suggestion that there was some blood that might have been hers. Mm-hmm. But, um, and several weeks into the operation... Um, the assistant commissioner or deputy commissioner, he might have been commissioner at the time I was getting there, Bob Walton came to review the, the inquiry and he asked me at, a, at the hearing that he had in, in the staff room, how well did we search the scene? Because he said in most homicides the bodies buried very close to where the offence took place. But the thing was that night the road was bumper to bumper in traffic there was fishermen down there, and, and there was a lot of activity. And yeah. no offender would have buried the body, yeah. you know, just by the gun emplacement. It was just impossible, impossible. to happen. I think, he, and he accepted, you know, that yeah. was the case. But he needed to ask ask the question: How closely do we yeah. search? I think you um, can't really get a a um, understanding of it until you go there and see how open it really is. Yeah. And um and and that's the thing too is I mean it was um there was fishermen there, there was a surfers there, people walking on the beach. Yeah. It was, yeah. Um, it was just too much activity for an offender to do something horrendous. It seems at the face of it that she's had a fall on the horse. 
because when they saw her coming back, the last witnesses that saw her, she was actually walking the horse yeah. at that point, yeah. holding her face. So if you, you start thinking, okay, well, your timeline is she's probably fallen off down there somehow, and I think the horse was bleeding too. Yeah, and but those witnesses never came forward, you know, like at the time. At the nine, yeah. No, so our staff so. were working in darkness with the mm. pathetic police torches, and one or two of them might have had a spotlight, but they were working in really difficult conditions without any modern, you know, mm. lights and things, and several hours. They were down at the scene, and then finally at about 11 o'clock at night, I said, let's call it quits, and we'll be back at 6 in the morning. But I was really pretty confident at the time that the information given from the staff at the scene, that that's what had occurred. You know, so... The, um, the, the hoof prints down to the, um, to the water, do you remember that quite... Was that down to the river or down to the actual... I think, I think it was the sea rather than the river but I'm I'm not sure yeah, of that because yeah. I I never personally went to the area where the hoof prints were seen by the staff um, Curse's horse may have it could get spooked by water um, and you know it made me think okay maybe that can explain the fall as well yeah, that's, that's the information yeah. we had that night and I know that her father had been down the scene so the staff at the scene must have spoken to him and that had come through from the staff that the water's edge and the horse may have been spooked and she was thrown into the water. Mm. And that was the premise that we worked on yeah. well, that night. You would, yeah. You know, so it was a tra- tragic accident at that stage. Yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news all right i'll do it. sign up now and you'll get unlimited for 15 dollars a month in six months of paramount plus essential plan on us mintmobile.com slash switch upfront payment of 45 dollars, equivalent to 15 dollars per month unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month face lower speeds videos at 480p active mint customers by 531 24 get six months of paramount plus essential plan auto renews after six months offer ends may 31st 2024 separate paramount plus registration required terms and conditions apply if rated pg in this early stage of the search the night of Curse's disappearance. The broken rope attached to the gun emplacement hadn't been found. Police were searching in the dark, with minimal lighting. Curse's horse Commodore was known to shy away from water. So when Cursor would ride him at the beach, she would normally do this further up the bank, as opposed to at the water's edge. Although he didn't see them himself, Mick recalls hoof prints to the water's edge being seen by staff. So why would this be? I have two possible theories for this. The first, that Cursor did ride Commodore down to the water's edge, and once there, he shied. 
causing her to fall and break her nose. My second theory is that having already fallen and broken her nose, Cursor then led Commodore to the water to clean her face. So then how does he end up tied to the gun emplacement? Could Cursor have struggled to hold him while she cleaned her face? Then looking around, she sees the gun emplacement up the beach and a possible place to tie him up for a moment. Was she given a piece of rope by the man in the white ute? All speculation. And there's something more, though, about this rope and the manner that Commodore was tied. And that was by his bit, which is the metal piece that sits inside the horse's mouth. I grew up with horses like Cursor, and I used to ride every day after school. And one thing I would never do would be to tie my horse up straight to its bit. It may seem an insignificant detail, and perhaps it is. But in my mind, it would point towards the fact that Commodore was tied up by someone other than Cursor. A horse tied up by its bit like this could do serious damage to its mouth if it pulled back. Although the rope was thin and weak, I still find this odd. Another point that sticks out to me is the idea that Cursor would leave Commodore willingly. The prevailing theory is that Cursor must have been persuaded to tie him up and leave with someone. Presumably to get a ride home. I just find this next to impossible to believe. If you've ever been a teenage girl as dedicated to equestrian as Cursor, you'll know that your first love was not a teenage boy, but your horse. And the thought that Cursor would leave him tied with a thin piece of cord attached to his bit, alone on the gun emplacement, is just not something I can accept. And Robin, Cursor's mother, echoes this sentiment. So if she wouldn't willingly leave her horse, and the location is too public for something horrendous as Mick described, then what does that leave us with? Aside from the search for Cursor, there was another thing police were desperately keen to find. And that was the man and the white truck. Robin Jensen recalls the stress and urgency of the search for this truck in her book, Cursor, A Mother's Story. White utilities had become a symbol of death for me. Whenever I saw one, it was like looking at a death wagon. If Cursor's abductor had rendered her unconscious and then taken her in such a vehicle, I wondered where he had put her. It seemed to me it would be fairly difficult to conceal her in the front of the vehicle. And if he had put her in the tray, he would have had to cover her. Mary and I spent Saturday afternoon driving around roads near the gun emplacement, looking for white utes on the roads, parked on properties, and we took the registration of every one we saw. John Russell described seeing a man speaking to Cursor, who was balding, and drove a white one-ton truck with the tray having wooden sides. 
as you can imagine, this type of vehicle is ubiquitous in a rural, truck-mad country like New Zealand. In fact, there were 25,000 registered in New Zealand at the time. So unless anyone came forward, it would be difficult to find. But despite the challenges, the police checked hundreds of white trucks in the Hawke's Bay area, all to no avail. Eventually, as Ian Hollyoak would tell me, they came to believe that there likely was no white truck. And this whole line of inquiry had been a complete red herring, instigated by John Russell. So if John Russell claims he saw a white truck at the gun emplacement, and it was such a public place, did anyone else see it? And the short answer is yes. As you'll be aware, memory is a fickle thing. But in the days and weeks that followed Curse's disappearance, there will be a total of six different witness sightings of a white one-ton truck in the immediate area at the time of Curse's disappearance. Whether these sightings were the same vehicle is unknown. But the owner of a white truck never came forward to police to say, that was me and I was there for innocent reasons. To this day, the white truck has never been found. Did it even exist? We may never know. But it's quite possible that the answer to Curse's disappearance will be found with that truck. In the months that followed, as not a single new lead was discovered, the search gradually wound down, and officers returned to their normal duties. But each and every one of them would be left with an indelible memory of this tragic occurrence, and all that went with it. And none more so than Detective Inspector Ian Holyoke. As the clock ticked over on New Year's Eve 1983, Curse's picture took up the entire front page of the Daily Telegraph. And with it, a letter from Ian. And read here by him. The year draws to a close, and as we reflect on 1983, we do so with mixed feelings of joy and sadness. It is sometimes hard to increase the former, and it's difficult to reduce the latter as it is to stop the years from passing. For some time, the police and associated agencies have promoted Neighbourhood Watch as a means of improving community awareness. From a police viewpoint, the spirit and involvement with regard to the investigation of crime has never been greater in the Hawke's Bay than during our investigation into the disappearance of Cursor Jensen. While aware of an immense contribution so many people have made and are not able to identify them all and have less opportunity to thank them, through the column of a newspaper then, I'd like to record my personal appreciation for the thoughts, help and assistance so readily provided to me by friends, family, staff, news media, the people known and unknown, indeed the whole community. On this occasion, the neighbourhood has watched and, to the best of its ability, has responded. 
Thank you, Ian Holyoke. Guilt Untold Stories is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that, opinions, and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with over a thousand other listeners on our Guilt Podcast discussion group on Facebook. Guilt is a 100% independent production. Unlike other New Zealand podcasts, we've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast+. Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was produced 100% without the use of AI. On the next episode of Guilt, Untold Stories. He publicly did admit killing her and then publicly renounced that. Okay. Yes, I think a lot of consideration was given that she has fallen off her horse. She is hurt and injured somewhere. That she tied the horse up, went down to the river to wash the blood off her face that we believe she had, or went down to the sea, and that was certainly looked at. Uh, High tide was, I think, an hour, or within an hour, an hour and a half of when she disappeared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.